If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 610. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to be back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that early on in this show. Also, go to brianmcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Click on the shop tab. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. That's the best way to get people interested in the show. Comment on the YouTube channel. Share it around on social media. Do everything you can to get more eyeballs and ears on the program. That's how we grow the audience organically. And I do appreciate those show requests. If you got something you want to hear, send it my way. I'm actually going to have some of those in the next couple of weeks. So I do read them. If I don't respond, I do appreciate it. Now, let's talk about... The topic of the day, and it's the war, but it's an interesting new book about the war entitled Bonds of War. And I read about this in the New York Times. I subscribe to the New York Times, so you don't have to. But it's uh, David Thompson wrote this. He is a, a professor of history. Uh, now, he's not, he's from Connecticut. He's certainly not uh, pro Southern in any way. I mean, he wrote this little book about. American financing of the war. In fact, the subtitle is How Civil War Financial Agents Sold the World on the Union. Now, I read about this again in the New York Times. I found it interesting because there's a book um, by a guy named Bensel entitled Yankee Leviathan, and it gets into the economic transformation of the United States by the war. And this is something the Dunning School was very interested in. In fact, if you look at what's happened with Reconstruction after Eric Foner got involved in this, and I, I've mentioned this several times on this program, but I'll never forget as, an, as a graduate student sitting in a seminar with a very good historian named Mark Smith, and he had a chart that showed the different, not interpretations of Reconstruction, but the different topics of Reconstruction before Eric Foner began to dominate the subject. You had all kinds of things being written about Reconstruction. Diplomatic histories, economic histories, social histories, political histories. Once you get to Eric Foner, though, everything becomes social and everything is about race. And so all of that stuff is left off. If you take my McClanahan Academy courses on the war and Reconstruction, or if you take principally on Reconstruction, but if you take it on uh, the, that, that series, right? Or if you take my U.S. Uh, history survey course, I get into this because the economic transformation of the United States was no small part of this process. In fact, you could argue that an economic transformation of the United States was the most important thing to come out of the war. Even more important 
than ending slavery. Ending slavery, of course, was an important byproduct, but how that factored over time was going to be wrestled with in a variety of different ways. But the economic transformation was almost complete from day one, from when it began in 1863. And I think that you can say in this that um, this economic transformation was planned. In fact, if you go back to who Lincoln was and how important economics were to Abraham Lincoln, this is where Tom DiLorenzo almost always hits a home run in talking about this economic centralization of the United States. It's why Lincoln is often singled out by people at the Mises Institute and other places, the Austrian economic, uh, economists, as those who would say that Lincoln radically transformed America. And you can say that. It, in fact, if you, if you follow that, that tact, the war was a revolution, not from the South, but from the North. You see, the South had long blocked any type of economic centralization. You go back to 1791. This book begins with that. It starts talking about this, these different uh, starts and stops of economic centralization in American history. You go back to 1791 with Hamilton's uh, economic system. It's put into place, and the South begins to oppose it. You also had Northerners who opposed it as well. But the South was the most vociferous section of the United States that opposed that situation, that opposed economic centralization. So what happens when the South is out of the Union? Well, you get economic centralization. You get the issuance of bonds, which is what this book is all about. And what he says, what Thompson says, which I think is accurate, is you had all these large financiers of the war. And there were many of them. And you had a lot of people making money on the war. But they weren't necessarily financing the war. What you get in the war is Lincoln's recognition that the big money wasn't necessarily sold on saving the Union, but that he could appeal to small donors, people that had a little cash, and they would invest and they would buy bonds. Now, what's, what's lost in this book, of course, is the terrible economic depression that was taking place in the 1860s and what William Marvel just pointed out, that Union soldiers joining up to get a paycheck. You had a lot of that. Okay, But regardless, uh, you had people investing in the war, and you had the expansion of the fiat currency. You had the expansion of the monetary supply by printing, printing greenbacks. Now, when I was uh, working on James Byard when I was a graduate student, and I came across a letter that he wrote to his son, and James Byard was in the U.S. Senate for most of the war, and he talked about this, and he opposed all these financing measures for the war. And he said, look, we're going to see inflation, and you better start investing in gold, because that was the way the government was going to finance the war. They were going to inflate the currency, they were going to issue bonds, they were going to borrow money, and that's what they were going to do. In fact, I think Thompson's accurate about this. This war represented the new way the United States was going to wage war financially. World War I wasn't the first time the United States appealed to people to buy victory bonds or to go out and invest in the war, to, to show your mettle by, by showing that you support the war by putting your money into bonds. No, no, no. The first time that happened, the dry run for this was the Civil War, right? It was the war for Southern independence. Because in that war, the North had to raise a tremendous amount of money. And he actually unknowingly essentially justifies or verifies this argument that the war was not just about slavery. It was a complex, a complex situation that developed 
And of course, you had the triumph of one view of American society, the Lincolnian view over the other. He actually points out a quotation from a Confederate saying they didn't beat us on the battlefield. And I'm paraphrasing, they beat us at the bank. They were able to finance this war and do things we couldn't do. All the major banking houses were in the North. There was very little in the South. They had to create all this stuff. There's a, there's a museum, a naval museum. It used to be the Confederate Naval Museum. Now it's the National Civil War Naval Museum in, in, near where I live. And they have a, a, a diagram there of you know what the Confederacy had and what the Union had. The Confederacy had to create their entire Navy, their entire army, all their banking houses. All this stuff had to be created from scratch. It's amazing that the Confederacy was able to hang in the war for four years. They should have lost within a year. That's the amazing thing about the war. It should have been over. It should have been over. But they were able to hang in there for four years because the North was essentially incompetent. And there wasn't a whole lot of rah-rah for the Union in the North until you started getting conscripts, nearly 800,000 of them, and, of course, uh, people that were substitutes, and then, of course, later on, black soldiers. But, I mean, 50% of the Army, ultimately, and the Union Army was made up of people that, uh, that were really considered to be incidental to the cause when the thing began in 1861. So uh, this is an important look, though, at this financial part of the war, and it's why I want to talk about it on this podcast today. Again, it's, the book is Bonds of War by David Thompson. It's published by University of North Carolina Press. came out uh, just, uh, uh, will come out, I'm sorry, April 12th. It's not even out yet. So it's, uh, you can get it. Uh, I, I've purchased it on Kindle. Um, and it says it's in stock. I guess the official release date is April 12th doing this before April 12th, but it's already out. All right, so I want to, uh, to to go through a couple of things here. And I got I went to the page, or to the chapter, on um, the nationalization of the economy. And he has a really interesting quote. And the title of this subtitle of this chapter, uh, section of it, is Bonds of the National Bank Act. And he says, On January 7th, 1863, Samuel uh, Hooper introduced H.R. 656 in the House, the first such national banking bill to come out of the 37th Congress. Several weeks later, Senate ally John Sherman put forward his own version of a national bank bill. Sherman's bill had, in fact, been put before the Senate as a reaction to President Lincoln's letter to both chambers calling for a national banking system dated, dated January 19th. So here's Lincoln in 1863 looking at the current situation. Remember, Lincoln had long been a proponent of the national bank. He had long been a proponent of the National Bank long before we had the war, right? So he's a disciple of Henry Clay. He's a disciple of the Hamiltonian economic system. And the war is a tremendous opportunity to foist this on the United States. I do believe that the reason that Southerners so much embraced regulation in the post-war period, it was driven by, of course, their section and where they're from, but also they looked at the apparatus that had been put in place and said, okay, you know what we can do? We can use that against these big moneyed interests in the North. We can regulate, we can regulate commerce, we can regulate banking. If we're going to have it, let's regulate it. If we're going to do unconstitutional banking, let's do unconstitutional regulation. Now, they didn't use those terms, but essentially that's what's going on here. So Lincoln wants a bank bill. Lincoln wants to nationalize the economy. So then Sherman makes a speech. In a speech on the Senate floor on February 10, 1863, Sherman equated the current system of state banks with slavery and a national system with emancipation. 
Now think about rhetorically what he's doing there. This is 1863. We've had, uh, well, we're going to get, we've had the Emancipation Proclamation, right? So we now have slavery as a war aim. Now Sherman's brother, of course, <laughs> William Tecumseh Sherman, um, was not someone who was you know, very much interested in abolishing slavery at the beginning of the war. He was, a, a, I mean, we would consider him a white supremacist. Uh, I mean, Sherman wasn't a guy that really thought that slavery was that big of an issue. And, but he was interested in punishing the South. But John Sherman was much more ideological than his brother. And John Sherman, the old icicle, certainly was doing everything he could to transform the United States government. He did this after the war, too, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act, the Sherman Antitrust Act. I mean, this is, I mean, John Sherman is one of those people that really, really nationalized everything in the United States. You can make a case he really screwed up the United States, right? So John Sherman says this, The policy of this country, Sherman declared, ought to be to make everything national as far as possible, to nationalize our country so that we shall love our country. This doctrine of states' rights has been the evil of the times. Now, when he says equated slavery with emancipation, uh, if, if Thompson's pulling that from that, I don't see where that quote, now I haven't read the speech myself, but I don't see where he gets that from that quote, right? Uh, where you say that's slavery and emancipation. But... I mean, if you want to extrapolate that. See, this is the problem with modern historians. Well, states' rights is slavery. Emancipation is nationalization. <laughs> Even though emancipation, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free any slaves in the North. I mean, forget, hey. But who's counting, right? But again, read that. This, the policy of this country ought to be to make everything national as far as possible, to nationalize our country so that we shall love our country. This doctrine of states' rights has been the evil of the times. Now, what he's just done there is make this a national objective. We're going to nationalize. We're, we're creating a national government. States' rights have been around since long before this. I talked about it yesterday when we looked at the Southern tradition. What Sherman is recognizing, and I don't think Thompson can get it, what Sherman is recognizing is that this entire federal principle of union is going to be expunged by the war. We create a national government during the war. And the, the people that suffer from that are, is the general American population to this day, right? So that was a minority party in 18, 1863. If you put all Americans together, they would have opposed everything Sherman just said. A majority of Americans would oppose that. But because the Republican Party now has control of the U.S. government, because the war is ongoing and there's no opposition, they can do all this stuff. And when the South comes back in the Union under Republican guidelines, this is what they have to accept. The nationalization of everything. So we still have the same Constitution that was ratified in 1788. But what's happened because of several different things leading to this and then this forward is that we've transformed the United States government to something that isn't even recognizable by the Constitution. Thompson says several senators spoke in objection to Sherman's claims, most notably Senator Jacob Collamer of Vermont, a federal Republican. Collamer viewed the end of state banks as a derangement, ultimately utterly destructive of the condition of society in which I live. And the House of Representatives, one of the foremost critics of a national bank, E.G. Spalding of New York, 
made an abrupt turn by February 19th when he spoke at length in favor of the measure. It seems, said Spalding, the present is a proprietist time to enact this great measure as a permanent system and that the duty of the government in providing a national currency shall no longer be neglected. The government of the United States ought not to depend on state institutions for the execution of its great powers. Now, think of what they're just saying here. The Constitution, in other words, doesn't matter. We're not going to have the states execute the laws of the general government, which is exactly what the states have to do. This is why non-commandeering, this is why refusal to comply is so powerful a part of the states. And this is exactly what Spalding and Sherman are against. Colomer of Vermont is saying, whoa, 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 wait a second here. Now, you're trying to knock down state power. I'm not necessarily in favor of that. You know, uh, Colomer had his own issues, right, in, in, in the Senate. This period in the Senate is really interesting to, to read about. But Colomer had his own issues. But at this point, he's saying, ah, you know, you're going a little too far here, old icicle. This is taking these things too far. Despite some rancorous debate, the measure passed the House 78 to 64 and in the Senate 23 to 21. Think about how close that is. Think about how close that is. Two votes in the Senate. 14 votes in the House. This is a very slim majority for the Republican Party to get these things through. And again, if you had the South in the government, none of this is ever passed. Not one thing. All this, in a way, is illegitimate. If you want to look at legitimate government, it's all illegitimate because there was really, if we're saying the South never left the Union, there's no representation from the South at this point. So all of these things are illegitimate because if the South is included, is there even a quorum in the Senate to do business? Is there even a quorum in the House to do business? I don't know. If you're saying these states are still in the Union. President Lincoln signed the bill into law on February 25, 1863, a year to the day after the Legal Tender Act. The National Bank Act and the Legal Tender Act played critical roles in not only boosting a federal monetary structure, in other words, inflating the currency, but also in amplifying the importance of bonds in the national conversation. Between creating a widespread issue of bonds with the Legal Tender Act and using bonds as starting capital requirements for new national banks, the entire financial mechanism found itself enmeshed in bonds. In other words, they were going to borrow a tremendous amount of money. But from the people, right? They're not borrowing it from the big bankers or the big industries. They're borrowing it from the people. That makes it different. Makes it different. But, again, the important thing is the radical economic transformation of the United States. And John Sherman recognized that, as did Spalding. This is exactly what we're doing here. They were open about it. We are transforming the United States. The National Banking Act also required a new national banks to procure U.S. bonds as part of their capitalization. National banks acquired approximately $250 million in union bonds to fulfill the requirements. The final version of the National Bank Act led to a sliding scale of bonds required by various banks for capital requirements in order for the banks to conduct business. Any extension of credit required the further purchase of bonds. Think of what they're doing here. The banks essentially have to borrow money from the central government to operate. It's creating a system where the banks are tied into the central government and the monetary supply, right? Any extension of credit required the further purchase of bonds, right? By the time of Chase's report to Congress in December 1863, 
134 national banks have been organized with a capitalization of slightly more than $16 million. By November 1864, these figures had increased to 584 national banks with nearly $66 million in capitalization. By December of 1865, the numbers expanded to 1,647 banks and $418 million in capitalization. Bond purchases by the national banks retained by the Treasury to enable circulation of funds only involved a small portion of the billions of dollars in loans sold by the government, but nevertheless revealed the centrality of U.S. debt in the national financial infrastructure. So, here it is. Pure evidence. Thompson is showing that the real point, one of the real points of the war was to destroy the states, to nationalize everything, and to do it through an economic infrastructure. This is what Dunning School was talking about. If you read William Dunning's Reconstruction, Political and Economic, he points this out. So, all this stuff, all the phoner stuff, all these things that happened, what we've done is destroy a real understanding for what happened in the war with by being so infatuated with race and slavery. We're essentially missing the point. When the war begins, even, even Thompson points it out, nobody's really thinking about slavery. That's far off in the distance. That's something that's way out there. That's years out there. When the war begins, what they're worried about is getting people to sign up and the economic way the way to fund this war right they have to think about that so they're going to think about these economic things before and it's going to be nationalization that's what they're going to do that's why i like this book i mean there's there's issues in it some of the things he says look it's typical establishment historian drivel right but the fact is he's really doing some good work here in pointing out how important the financial part of this was to the war he says, while the National Bank Act had immediate consequences, the later amendments during the war are just as illuminating. For instance, an 1864 amendment to the bill reflected above all a concession to Wall Street interests by authorizing Wall Street banks to act as depositors for other banks throughout the country. The New York firms retained exclusive rights to offer interest on the Western bank balances and further solidified the de facto central banking role of Wall Street firms and in New York, in New York City as a whole. The ability of New York banks to pay interest on reserves made Wall Street the money center, linking it with congressional policy and Main Street financial interest. An 1865 act that imposed a 10% tax on new state banks notes issues effectively killed off many of the state banks that were still fighting the national banking system. By the end of the war, the federal government had charted 700 national banks, opening a new era in American financial history. Think about that. A 10% tax on state bank notes. So essentially... 1865, the idea was to kill state banks, was to kill any evidence of federalism, even economic federalism, in the United States. That was the sole purpose of the war. It's the real purpose of the war. All the other stuff is incidental. The real purpose of the war, what Thompson does, unknowingly, I think, is show you that the real purpose of the war is not just to save the Union. It was to create a national government. And if you go back to 1787 and you go to the Philadelphia Convention, to a man, the majority opposed a national government. But the war is going to bring it. This is exactly what happened. This is why the war is revolutionary. This economic part is revolutionary. And so this is why I think this book is interesting and why if you're looking for a book by a mainstream historian, an establishment historian, that's going to have some of that stuff in it, but that actually makes some good points, I'd recommend this book. 
So the title of the book, again, is Bonds of War by David Thompson. It's, uh, it's available on Amazon now. It says April 12th is the release date, but it's already out. So go check it out. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>